Good morning. Anybody here uh, just really somber because you're mourning the Pelicans? Yeah, thank you. One. I, I see your hand. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to resist commentary at this point. Uh, actually, there's something I can't resist that's in the news. Well, no, it's not a no-no. Hopefully it's helpful. Um, well, you know, there are moments when, you know, the, this, this pulpit is for God's care for his people in the here and the now with what we'll do this morning in the text from Exodus is reach way back to God's wisdom and insight into the life that he has given to man and the world that he created for his purpose. And we're going to learn something from that today that's going to import into our lives today and it's going to make a difference and it's going to be important to us. But that always happens in the context that we live in. And so there's life going on today, right? So there's news items that capture your attention during the week and sometimes um, I'm, I'm challenged to know whether to ignore them or not. So I'm not going to ignore one, but I'm just going to say something very quickly about it and reference you to somewhere else. Uh, I was just affected worshiping the Lord this morning. Um, apparently, if you're a Twitter follower, you would have bumped into something about Bruce Jenner uh, this week. If you are following the news and following what's been on TV, you would have come in contact with some aspect of the story of the once Olympic athlete Bruce Jenner uh, pursuing gender, uh, gender change and wrestling with issues of whether he's a man or a woman. Um, and, you know, I saw the news repeating some of the interview with him, and I don't, I don't know what that, the news element, the headline, the transgender topic affects us one way. You hear that, and something rises up in you, right, your person. Uh, but I have to say, as I watched this man tell his story, uh, a compassion in my heart for him came over me. And then this morning, we're, we're singing, I'm alive because I'm alive in you. And there's something, you know, something we can overlook as believers. That there are some things that we look out in life and we see and they make sense to us because I'm alive in him. And if I were not alive in him, I'd be wandering through this world as confused as anyone else. And my confusion might sit in a different category than somebody else's, and I might do some things that are less drastic than somebody else does, but I'm just wandering through this world confused because at the, the very basis of what we understand about life, if you're a Christian, Life was intended to be connected to the living God. And until it is, it doesn't make sense. And nearly nothing about it makes sense. Relationships don't make sense. Responding to the hurts and pains of life don't make sense. Gender doesn't make sense. None of it really makes sense until our lives are connected to the living God. I'm alive 
because I'm alive in God. And then the next song, Eric was killing me with these songs this morning. The next song just highlights the story of my life uh, of being a rebel who was run down by God. And so, so listen, I hope, I hope this informs you a little. We interact with the news, and, and I know these news items, they do all kinds of things for us. And we're trying to figure out how to be a people who have convictions, and we love the truth, and we love what God has, has revealed about things. And, and, and come on, guys, be honest. We can be pretty obnoxious with how we hold these things because we forget I'm a, I, the only reason why I see anything it's because I'm alive in God. And when you ask the next question and you go, Keith, well, why are you alive in God? Well, because God was merciful to me. And I got no other reason. It wasn't because I'm smarter than Bruce Jenner or anybody else. It's because God was merciful to me. And I, I don't know why he chose to be merciful to me. He could have just let me keep wandering. I don't know where I was headed, but it wasn't anywhere good. And I'm standing here this morning, and I see some things about life. I see some things about relationships and dealing with people and walking through things. There's this wonderful thing that, that comes into your life when you, when you encounter Christ called forgiveness. Do, do you have any idea what forgiveness does in the human arena? When you take forgiveness into your relationships with people and you humbly give it to other people? Do you understand? It revolutionizes everything we call marriages and family and friendships. It's, it's a bizarre thing that it does. And the only reason why I've got any of it to give away is because the God of mercy ran me down and gave it to me. And now it, it comes into my world. But I'm only alive because I'm alive in him. And so my, my heart is just filled with compassion for the people who struggle to make sense of life. It is a confusing existence out there. And so part of our heart needs to be compassion as we engage issues of right and wrong. And, and the only reason why we see some of these things is because of the mercy of God. Um, I, do, I, just, you know, the, the, I know that's going to be in the news. It's going to remain in the news. Some of you guys who were here in the summer, we did a little brief summer hot topics series back in the summer. And one of the things that we did a message on was on gender. So if you're trying to navigate through, how do I think about some of this biblically? You can go back to our podcast in, I think it was June or July, and, and look at uh, you know, a message on gender, on the gender issue uh, that's out there. Uh, but you know, man, no matter how, you, how well you load up with information, make sure that, that the information you get from the Bible describes yourself well, so that when you go to engage people on this, you're just not obnoxious. Okay? For all of us who have a tendency to be obnoxious, and we know who we are. <laughs> Exodus chapter 1. Have you ever found yourself in the place where you're asking the question, where, where is God? You know, is life just sort of change gears and, and, and put you in a place where you just feel like God is absent, God is distant somehow. You know, when you're asking questions like, how long? How, how long is this going to go on? You're identifying that there's something wrong here. 
So it needs to change. How long? And you know, I use this phrase on people sometimes when they come to counseling. I, I, it just kind of comes to my mind. It's like, hey, listen, you're, you're still in bounds. I use that phrase on folks. But, you know, sometimes your life feels like it's out of bounds, doesn't it? It's like somehow I'm out of bounds. Things shouldn't be this way in my life. And so we begin to ask some questions, right? So how far outside of our understanding of good, acceptable, doable can our lives get and we still feel like we're in bounds, right? Because you, you, you come into everyday existence with a definition for good. This thing is good, right? Uh, this is doable for me. God has brought something into my life, and it's doable for me. And you believe it's doable to this level, or you believe it's good if it stays within this box right here. So how far outside of my definition of good can life get and me still say, I'm in bounds. Uh, I'm still in bounds as a child of God. I'm okay. Well, when Exodus opens up here, right, when we come into this book, and we've come into it out of Genesis, and so if you, if you can just turn back a page to Genesis chapter 50, the tail end of what was going on on our way into Exodus, Exodus was a good uh, or Egypt was a good address to be located at. At the end of Genesis, Egypt is a good place. Right? And we find that word used in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph is having an exchange with his brothers. Remember, his brothers had betrayed him and sold him into slavery. Uh, Jacob, the father of all the brothers, has died. So the restraining hand of the patriarch is gone, and the brothers are thinking, we're doomed. Joseph is going to not withhold his anger against us as to what we have done to him, and we are all doomed. Joseph's the man in Egypt. He's got power over us. Joseph tells them, hey, look, relax, guys. I'm not going to do that. And this is what he says. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, right? So he looks at their perspective, and this is an interesting thing, and if you don't have some good theology here, you're going to get really tricked into how you interpret your life. You meant it for evil, my brothers. That's what you wanted to do. Evil was in this. It felt evil, right? I got betrayed. I got sold. I got into Egypt, got mistreated, and spent time in jail. You meant it for evil, and doggone it, it felt evil. But in the same sentence, this man can say, but it was good. And Egypt was a good place. You remember what Egypt was when they showed up, right? You show up in the land of Goshen, you're the descendants of Jacob, in the middle of a famine, in days ahead that are going to be filled with famine, and people are going to starve to death. One family member, you're going to watch your family members die one at a time. And they go to Egypt and there's plenty of grain, there's plenty of food, there's provision there, there's rescue from this desperate situation. So on your way in, you're looking at Egypt and you're checking stuff out, a little different people, they kind of don't like our background, you know, they're not great about where we come from, but they're welcoming us, they're throwing their arms open, they're providing us with a place to live, and all the food that we need, we're, we're protected from what's happening out there. This 
is a good place. But in just a minute, you're going to find out, right, when we're in Genesis chapter, or Exodus chapter 1, you're not going to get to the end of the first chapter when this good place becomes a not good place. It's not good anymore. Now, let me just put this in, you know, into our world. There are settings that, that you find yourself going into in life sometimes. And, and your hope is that God is leading you into these places, Right? And so, you know, you're a young person or really any age, and you, you enter into a friendship, right, as a friend, and you get to know each other, and there's things that you like together, and you begin to build a relationship with one another, and there's care and support and meaningful involvement, and this friendship feels good. This is good. This is a good friendship. Uh, but most of us have an Exodus chapter one story in our lives where we entered into a friendship that started that something was good here, and by the time we got later on in the chapter, that was a bad deal. Somebody hurt us, they betrayed us, they spoke about us, they revealed something about us and hurt us. Uh, listen, right, marriage is the same sort of thing, isn't it? You know, there's not a lot of people standing on their wedding day facing one another with this grim look like, oh my gosh, I'm going to regret this. <laughs> right? It's a great day. This feels good. It's a place of rescue. It's a place of provision, affection, care, belonging. Oh, yes, I do. And then you get to the end of chapter one, and it doesn't always feel that way, does it? It can, it can feel like it's turned bad in some way. Uh, most people, when they're having children, this is, this is, this is why if, if, you, if you have children that are really, really old enough, you'll, you'll, you'll stop having them. Uh, but when they're little, so you don't know where they're going yet, so it looks like just one fun thing after another, right? So you have children and have children. Uh, but some of you can tell a story that what began with, oh, this is so good, later in life became very painful. Right? I mean, your kids became a source of affliction in your own heart and how your life felt and what relationship you have with them today versus what it felt like on the way in. All right, so where's God in all this? You know, are you inbounds when the kids are little, you're inbounds on your wedding day, but later on when it starts to feel like I can't find God anywhere and I don't feel like God's anywhere. Am I still in? Are you still inbounds? You've fallen out somehow? Is God not there? Or do we need to learn something about God that feels different in different places in different times, right? Uh, put this little, remember this as we read through Exodus. It's bottom line here, the scripture in 1 Corinthians. Now, these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction. So what we have here in Exodus chapter 1 is recorded as an example for us to learn from. So we're going to learn about God today as we open this passage up. So let's look in Exodus chapter 1. Let me get a quick recap. Things are not going well. Chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape 
from the land. Well, Lord, help us as we open your word today for some of us can identify with stepping into a land that felt welcoming and inviting and good and feeling like it turned shrewd on us, that it suddenly began to treat us differently and affect our lives in an unexpected way. Lord, where are you in those moments? God, help us to have eyes to see where you are today. In Jesus' name, amen. A little bit later on, that shrewdness turned into particular behaviors toward God's people. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And if slavery wasn't bad enough, they committed acts of genocide in verse 16. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, it's, it's hard to know from the way this story unfolds how long these events were actually taking place and to what severity they were taking place. But from the prophecy of these events in Genesis, the Bible says that they were going to be afflicted for 430 years. So whether that was a growing phenomenon, whether it got worse as it progressed, uh, I think we probably can imagine that's the case. But what's interesting here is Exodus chapter 1 covers 400 plus years. It's going to slow up tremendously after this. But 400 years are being covered here. 400 years of God faithfully rescuing his people from famine and destruction and bringing them into a place of provision and protection And then 400 years after that of, God, where on earth are you? It seems as though God is nowhere to be found. And these events are horrible events and difficult events. And in the moment in which you'd feel like, hey, don't I need God the most when affliction is the feature word of my life? And he seems like he's nowhere to be found. In fact, God's not going to make an appearance here. He's going to get mentioned in chapter 1, but he doesn't kind of make an appearance The the midwives feared God, but no mention of God yet until we get into chapter 2. And and let's remember something. God is the main character in the Bible. God is always the main character in the Bible. Exodus stories typically butcher that terribly. Usually when you're done watching the cartoon or whatever movie is out there, Moses is the main character, right? And if... The plot line of Exodus is to be understood. It's that, that strange relationship between Moses and Pharaoh that they grew up together rivals somehow. And the plot line is about resolving the rivalry between Moses and Pharaoh. It's like, who on earth is reading this thing? That's not what, Mo, that's not what this book's about. This book is about God. It's supposed to be showing us something about God, which makes it even stranger. Well, if this is a book about God, For 400 years, the main character is nowhere to be found. At least it looks like he's nowhere to be found. There's an apparent absence of God. Peter ends in his commentary on Exodus. He says, the appearance of God in chapter 2, verse 23, must be seen in light of the Israelites' perception of his absence in chapter 1. How has the God of our fathers, the God who promised his abiding faithfulness to us and our ancestors, allowed us to become slaves? 
Look at this young upstart Pharaoh flexing his muscles. Why doesn't God just snap his fingers and make him go away? Why has God forgotten us? I know all of us have been in places where we feel like that's the Egypt where I'm living. I'm out of bounds. God has forgotten me. Well, when God makes his appearance, interestingly, in chapter 2, verse 23, we're not skipping all that's before that. I just want to collect this into this moment. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew Go over in chapter 3, verse 6. God spoke and said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. here's, Here's God's entrance into this story in Exodus. And what's interesting is 400 years of what looks like God's not paying attention and God introduces himself by saying, uh, I have surely remembered my covenant. And he uses that word remember right there. And that's a loaded word uh, in scripture. Let me just tell you what it, what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean suddenly came to mind. It doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean stopped forgetting. Right? That's, what it, that's what it means when I use it. Right? I just, oh, babe, I, I, I'm just remembering. That means I suddenly am coming to realize I have been forgetting to do that all this time. This, this is not the image of God here. This is not God having a, oh my gosh, I left the toast in the toaster. My people are burning in Egypt. They're just getting cooked. I just stopped noticing them. Uh, this word gets used in connection with the word covenant quite a lot. It is God remembering his covenant. It is, it is a covenant mindfulness that doesn't ebb and flow and go away. It is a constant God knowing the covenant he has with his people. I, I love the way God describes this in Isaiah chapter 49. If you can flip there quickly, I'm just going to visit there for a second. In the midst of his people at another place, raising the question of, have God, God, have you forgotten us? God, are you gone away? Are you absent? And in Isaiah 49, verse 14 says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. 
Your walls are continually, continually, continually before me. This word remember doesn't mean that God forgot. God never forgets. God continuously has before him his heart connected to his covenant promises in our lives. God is a faithful God. He never, ever stops being faithful. He doesn't even become 80% faithful, 70% faithful, and then other times he's 100% faithful. God is always God in that category. He never changes. But that kind of raises some challenging questions for us as to how we understand faithfulness. How does God define faithfulness? And how do we define faithfulness? Right? What, what exactly does it mean for God to be faithful? Now, this is a real challenge, right? We sang some songs this morning about the greatness of God and the immensity of God. I think the word in, in, uh, infinity or infinitude or something was used in one of the songs. This is a humbling thing, right? You and I are going to get in a pickle at some point in our lives, and we're going we're gonna to pull out some really, really primitive tools, our technology to measure God is extremely limited. I mean, how many of us understand that? I'm going to measure God's faithfulness. Okay, go have at it. <laughs> and I'm just curious, what are you going to use to measure it? What? What are you going to take out and use? Because as a, as a human being, as a limited, finite creature, I, I, I've got limited territory, right? So when I go, God, you are faithful or you are not faithful, there's, there's a boundary around my life that I draw. My life is only so big. Let me just say this. The things that I care about are only so big. And so God's got to show up in those categories, in that space, and he's got to make sense to me in the timing in which I'm living as well. And <clears throat> this is a 400-year issue. There are things in my life that I can put up with for about 400 seconds. I might could go 400 minutes on a few, but I don't have much in my life that I'm willing to tolerate even for 400 days. This is a 400-year issue, and I'm going to measure God's faithfulness. And I've got a measuring rod that goes, let's, let's, let's pretend that we're all more spiritual than we are. I've got a measuring rod that goes a whole 400 days. I can wait 400 days for God to show up. And I take that thing out, and it's day 401. And now I'm not sure God's faithful anymore, right? Because if he's faithful, he shows up in this little space. And God's doing something over there. But see, I don't get over there. I don't even know that over there exists. I don't even have a category to pay attention to over there. I've got a category to pay attention to right here. This is what makes sense to me. So, okay, God, you've got limited time and limited space, and you've got to show up in that space in that time. And if you show up in a way that makes sense to me to call it good, I will call you faithful. Does that sound like a problem? For a finite man to measure the infiniteness of God? And this is where we generate all those questions that debate God. If if God is good, then why does he allow boom, boom, boom? Right? Isn't that the same thing? It's like, see, I've got a territory. It's this big. I've got an idea what good is, and it came from my vast amount of knowledge. And I've got an idea about time, 
And so I import all that together and God doesn't show up in those small little spaces that I've created by my humanity. And then I say, well, if God is really good, then he'd be able to fit in this box right here with me and it would all make sense. So why does this good God of yours allow this and this and this to take place? You know how I answer some people when I get in a debate with somebody about that? Um, I just admit to the person. I said, you know what? I don't play in that pay grade. I don't, I don't ask those kinds of questions because I struggled with calculus in high school. So I, I know that whatever answer the infinite God might give to me, I couldn't understand it anyway, probably. I might understand some of it. So the person who takes God to task first needs to start and realize, you know, dude, you, you've got a box of reality that's about this big. And you're trying to shove God into it and make him answer for why he colored outside your box. Well, he's God, and he does things faithfully all the time. God never stops being faithful. My definition is a challenge. Now, it's interesting here, though. This is good for us to realize as people of God, we're not antagonistic to God being God, but, but sometimes we don't experience him the same way, right? So you got Exodus chapter 1, where God seems like he's nowhere to be found, and then Exodus chapter 3, there's, you know, a burning bush, God's speaking and another human being is hearing his voice. His plan is being spelled out X, Y, Z. I mean, Moses is freaking out. He doesn't really like the plan. But at least he's here and there's a plan, right? So you've, you've got the same God who from Exodus chapter 3 on, he's going to show up all over the place now. There's going to be fireworks and plagues and, and, a, and a puppet show. There's a lot of stuff happening for the rest of the book of Exodus. But before that, where was God? But how many of us recognize he was equally still God in the 400 years as he was when he shows up at, the, at chapter 3? He's still the same God. He hasn't changed. He didn't become something. So tip for all of us, we've got we've to learn how to relate to God when he feels distant and quiet and when he feels near and noisy. He's still the same God. And we don't get to always have near and noisy, by the way. I, I, I'm always asking for that, but I don't always get to to have it. And then this whole delay element. How many guys have read the Bible a little bit and noticed there's delays all over the place? What is up with that, right? It's not just this unique situation in Egypt, 400 years. You backtrack to the promise made to Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham. This man desperately in his whole life has been waiting for an heir so that he can transfer his life to the next generation. And God comes in and says, I'm going to do that for you, Abraham. You know, don't sweat it. i I'm going to be faithful to you. 25 years, right? Now, this isn't 400 days. This is 25 years go by. And I don't know when you would have measured God's faithfulness and said, I don't think God's faithful anymore. Year one, year two, five years. I've been waiting for 10 years for God to show up and do what I thought he said he was going to do. It's been 10 years, Keith. Almost 25 years for Abraham. What a delay in this man's life. What, what faithfulness to Joseph as he gets betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, rotting in the, at the bottom of a dungeon cell. That, that, that doesn't feel like the imminent nearness of God, does it? But, but that's the storyline of God. This, this is, man, this is news that shouldn't be news to any of us. If we've read the Bible, none of us should be pulling our hair out going, but God seems to be delaying. Yeah, 
all over the place, right? Peter N says, God's people through all time have struggled with his apparent disinterest in their personal affairs. This is by no means a modern dilemma. Where are you, God? Is the refrain of Job and forms the substance of many of the Psalms. Wondering where God is and what he is doing is not a mark of spiritual immaturity or distrust in God. Rather, it represents the honest yearnings of God's people living in this world who long to feel his presence in their affairs. Doubts of his presence will come. If you can't hear anything else I've said today, that would be a good one to hold on to. Doubts of God's presence in your life will come. This is our lot in life. Nevertheless, how we perceive the matter does not determine its reality. God is present. He does care. Hence, our sense of his absence must be met head on. We may feel this way, but we've got to, have, we've got to be armed with some serious theology in these moments to come to grips with, do, am I just feeling this way in my 400-year apparent absent feeling of God, or is he really not here? And I may have to wrestle with that quite a bit. Peter Enns goes on and says, God, however, is with them. Regardless of the turn of political events, whether for good or bad, it is he who directs their paths, who brings blessing in times of peace, and who, as and when he sees fit, brings deliverance in times of trouble. I think it's appropriate. I think I'd sent something out in the, on the newswire from us this week. You know, it's sort of that sense of hang on, help is on the way. Um, I, I think the faithfulness of God behooves us to believe that. It may not arrive in the time frame in which we would prefer it to arrive, but God's rescue is always moving toward us. But in Exodus chapter 1, it just took a while for it to get there. But in God's wisdom, in God's perfection, it shows up exactly when and the way it needs to show up for his purpose. But hang on, right? No matter where you are this morning, hang on. Help is on the way. God's rescue is on the way. He is going to be faithful to you, right? It's tempting, I think I wrote this in your outline, it's tempting to interpret this new Pharaoh with his ungodly policies and programs, remember what they were, slavery and genocide, I'm not sure he ran for public office with those, but that became his program, as something that God is obviously against and therefore would immediately put an end to it, right? I mean, you would put an end to it right away, wouldn't you? There's this guy who comes into power. He's a politician. And he creates laws that enslave people, afflict them, make their lives miserable, treat them like subhumans, and then creates another set of laws where genocide begins to occur and human lives are now being taken, not just being treated poorly, but being taken Right? If, if you had power over that, you'd do something about that, wouldn't you? Would you wait? Would you do it immediately? Right, so all right, remember, now I get that because, I mean, I'm trying to think through whatever I understand good to be. But remember, I, I live in a box. I live in a box that God doesn't live in. 
And so I would act in a way that my box dictates that I act. My limited box calls the shots for my understanding of wisdom. So I might do something very different than God might do in these moments. It, but, but, you know, God's actions here seem nonsensical. Right? Right, this is, I know we've got, you know, politics are always out there. And it's always fun to watch Christians freak out in the realm of politics. I mean, we don't just follow politics. We freak out, right? Because if that guy gets in office and enacts those kinds of issues, right? See, that's because our mind says, hey, if this is good and that's bad, if bad shows up in life, then it needs to immediately be eradicated. That's how we think. That's not what God does here, is it? These guys showed up. The God of the universe, I mean, certainly we can say God could at any moment eradicate everything. God's not limited in his ability to do that. So it's quizzical as to, well, why didn't you from day one, God? Why'd you let this stuff go on on the planet that you made? Well, interesting, the scriptures let us go behind the scenes a little bit on this one. They don't always do that, right? Job gets a behind the scenes look. We get a behind the scenes look here. Uh, So we get some insights. Remember, these things are written down for our instruction. So question. Could it be that immediate relief of suffering, human mistreatment, and ungodly opponents is not always the kingdom agenda? Could that be possible? Could could it be possible that some of that's in your world in a certain way? That there there are bad people in your life that are afflicting your life somehow? And, you know, certainly the second they show up, we start hoisting up prayers like, God, can this come to an end by Friday? That's my gracious, you know, I'll I'll do it for a week. But after that, it's got to change. Could it be that the kingdom agenda is not for God to alleviate immediately or even in a short time span the suffering you are experiencing? Could it be? Yes, it could be. And then in my humanity, I ask, well, then God, why? Why would you do that? All right. Most of those questions, guys, I don't know that we'll ever get answers for until we're in heaven. But in this one, we get some answers. Romans chapter 9, verse 17. Commentary that Paul brings about this event in Exodus. The scripture says to Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Exodus, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, this is, this is an interesting commentary right? because we're just reading in Exodus. We got our foot in Exodus chapter one reading about a severe condition, a terrible treatment of people by this individual named Pharaoh who is pulling the strings on this stuff. And in Romans chapter 9, we get, quite honestly, exposed to something that's a little disturbing. If you're honest, these are the passages you don't like to read. I remember reading Romans. The first time I ever read Romans, it was my most unfavorite book in the Bible. It took a while for it to become my favorite book in the Bible. But it was my most unfavorite book in the Bible. And I specifically remember getting to the end of Romans chapter 8 and just kind of quickly reading through Romans 9, 10, and 11. Just, I don't, I don't get this stuff. 
yeah, that's exactly right. You didn't get it. <laughs> but in this is a commentary on this guy, Pharaoh. Where does this guy, Pharaoh, come from? How does he in, enter the scene of God's people? Well, Romans chapter 9 tells you how. For this very purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh. I raised you up. Wait, wait, wait. The slavery genocide guy? God, you sure you didn't raise up a different Pharaoh? Because certainly you would never allow for such evil to take place in people's lives. And listen, there's there's some bad theology that hates these verses and steers around them with all of its power because somehow we're trying to keep God innocent of things, of even getting anywhere near anything that seems evil or unfortunate or involved in suffering. We try and rescue God from that. Listen, God does not need to be rescued from that. The Bible clearly teaches God is not evil, so you don't need to go there because that's clear. God is not evil. But God will use evil, and he often does. And he uses it for purposes that I might not have in my box with me. Because in this scripture, I raised you up. Why'd you do that, God? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, I made you the most feared human being on earth so that I could put my heel on your head and squash you like a bug. So that for generations and generations and generations, people would say, hey, you remember Pharaoh? That dude was a bad dude. Yeah, but I know somebody worse than him. You might, you might not like that. I, I, there are moments where I don't like that, God. That doesn't live inside my box enough. So, God, you did something that involved my time span in my life because you wanted to show your greatness over there? God, who, who gave you permission to be great outside of my box? We need to talk, God. I don't know what you're thinking here. You what? So you wanted all of creation to know something about your greatness. So you allowed my box to sit in this mess for 400 years? See, I, I don't know that I like that. Do you like that? Actually, I've grown to love it. The more I've understood the universe and why it exists and who is truly glorious and where greatness sits, I've, I've grown to love God being great even if it doesn't make me comfortable for him to be great in ways. I've learned my place in God's creation. I'm I'm not the centerpiece. And then there's other revelation here. Genesis 15. This This is God speaking to Abraham. So we're several hundred years before the Exodus event here. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They're going to be servants in Egypt, Abram. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they they will come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
Why is it going to be 400 years? Well, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This perfect God who is going to perfectly rescue his people, perfectly be merciful and gracious to them, is also about to exercise perfect justice on a group of people called the Amorites that live outside of the box of the Israelites. And God's glorious justice is going to be seen upon a people and their sin when he brings judgment upon them. But for whatever reason in God, God says that moment has not yet come. So you guys are going to be waiting right here until it happens. Well, here's here's another one of those situations where God has got reasons from outside my box. God had reasons for what was going on in their lives that had to do with what was going on in the Amorites' lives. See, this is where I just begin to just let God manage his own universe. Because there's stuff that I want God to do that makes sense if I just pay attention to the borders of my life. God, if you move this from here to here, well, within the borders of my life, it makes sense for you to do that, God. Well, go ahead and do it. And do it today because it just makes sense. And then yet God's managing the whole universe. So there's some kind of little group of Amorites in my life that God's managing that too. And he may say, no, Keith, not time for that yet because I'm managing the Amorites. And part of me says, I don't care about the Amorites. (laughs) And there's the conflict. God's got to be God and I'm not. Now listen, let let this mess with you because, you know, we have this tendency, this is when we rescue God from being anywhere associated with anything that's uncomfortable and evil, you create a God who was doing what? I mean, just play out your God for a moment. This evil, God didn't raise any of this up, right? It just happened. These poor guys went into Egypt, and it just happened. Is that, is that, is that your idea? So what, how did God respond? Did God go, oh, jeez. <laughs> They're in Egypt, and these people have turned on them. Oh, man, I need a backup plan. And then it took God 400 years to think of a backup plan. Is that how your theology works? Are you more comfortable with that? Because I know you're not comfortable with the idea that God had anything to do with that nasty Pharaoh getting raised up and he had any knowledge of that or anything to do with it. I know we, we want to rescue God from that. Are you more comfortable with the idea that God had no idea? Does that, does that make you more comfortable? That God gets surprised by bad dudes like Pharaoh. And then God reels on his heels trying to figure out what to do about them. Hey, if God got surprised, and this wasn't part of God's plan, when day one comes and he he takes the first life of the child and God realizes this is a bad deal, God kills him immediately, doesn't he? Must be that God knew about this all along. Must be that God was involved in this plan all along. And then when we read in Genesis, he specifically told Abram, this is how it's going to play out, Abram. This is what your descendants need to know so that when they're in that land and they feel affliction and servitude for 400 years, they can remember God said this would happen. There's a lot of stuff that God has told us about life that will happen. It serves us well to know about that. It serves us well to know God. It serves us well to know the word of God. We can't be amateurs and do life in this world. We will get twisted in knots. Very helpful to know what God had revealed previously when you're sitting in your 400 years. I love the way A.W. Tozer says this, as only he can. You can live on froth and bubbles and little wisps of badly understood theology until the pressure is on. 
And when the pressure's on, you'll want to know what kind of God you're serving. Listen, you and I have a frothy little picture of God. It's a God who fits in our box. It's a God who has two characteristics, mercy and goodness. He's not up to anything else. He doesn't do anything else. He's not involved anywhere else. He's not managing the universe. He's not interested in his own glory. He's just interested in my next featured comfortable event. And so we define God this way, and we've got thin, frothy theology. There's a lot of thin, frothy churches out there preaching thin, frothy messages about how you can be comfortable getting to know this God. Well, these are problematic passages, aren't they? How do you face the absence of, absence of God for 400 years, thin and frothy? A little tough, right? But, but, but these things were written down as examples for us to learn something from them. I'm supposed to be learning about a God who dares to do something over there instead of just something right here. About a God who dares to take 400 years to get me out of a pickle. I'm supposed to learn something about that God right here. And then at the end of the day, it's supposed to cause me to worship him. If I understand it right, it will. But it's not an easy thing. Now listen, knowing God's word, knowing God's word, which seems to be falling out of step with God's people, is much more important to you. Much more important in these days than, I don't know, you know, mega doses of Facebook and Fox News and NFL Network. Uh, that stuff's not going to serve you when the pressure's on. Now, I'm not saying that you can't enjoy any of that stuff. But that stuff is not going to serve you when you're in your 400 years of being turned inside out in life. You're going to need to hear something from God that's real and deep and makes sense to you. I don't know if I wrote this in your outline. If not, just listen carefully. It is easy to believe that God is with us when we are convinced that something or some place is good for us. But there was something else going on in this land called Egypt that might not be as important to us, but it matters to God. This is what it go back to. I mean, we're going to measure God's faithfulness. God is a faithful God. Faithful to what? Be careful that you haven't created this idea. Faithful to my box. So when I see God's fingerprints show up in my box a certain way, I will call him faithful, Keith. Until that day, no. That's not a good place to be. God was faithful when Pharaoh came up with his first stupid idea to harm another person. God was being faithful. God was faithful in day one when they came and there was a welcome plates and sandwiches were available and the hospitality of Egypt was made available. You realize how sweet this was? When they first showed up, I don't know if you ever read this, but in Genesis chapter 50, when, when Jacob dies... All kinds of Egyptian officials and important people traveled all the way to Canaan to go to his funeral. Joseph was a respected and loved man in Egypt. This was a sweet deal. And then there arose another king who didn't know. And all of a sudden, it all changed. Did you know on that day, God was as faithful in that moment as he was when they were serving up food for the starving Israelites who showed up at their doors. He was as faithful on day two, year 200 as he was when 
The other Pharaoh said, hey, you guys can have Goshen. Y'all can live over there. God's faithfulness didn't ever, ever change. A.W. Tozer says, this is the kind of God you're serving. All that God says or does must accord with all of his attributes, including his attribute of faithfulness. Every thought that God thinks, every word that God speaks, every act of God must accord with his faithfulness. His wisdom, his goodness, his justice, his holiness, his love, his truth, and all his other attributes. To magnify one phase of God's unitary character, character and diminish another is always wrong. If we magnify one attribute to the diminishing of another, we have an asymmetrical concept of God, a lopsided God. Well, that is, he's lopsided as we see him. So, here's our question. Do circumstances drive our interpretation of God? Or does God drive our interpretation of circumstances? You stand in the midst of 400 years of affliction and interpret God is absent? Or that God is active? It felt like he was absent, but we got a chance to read that he wasn't absent, was he? He was active. God was actively bringing his will to pass in ways and in settings and in places because God is always faithful to do that. Even if it feels like he's forgotten me though right now, but, but, but let's deal with reality. It feels that way, but he has not. He is faithful today as much as he has ever been in our lives. One more thought from Mr. Tozer. Faithfulness is that in God which guarantees that he will never be or act inconsistent with himself. You can put that down as an axiom. It's good for you now, and it's good for you when you're dying. It will be good to remember as you rise from the dead and good for all the eons and millenniums to come. God will never cease to be what he is and who he is. Everything God says or does, right? Everything must be in accord with his faithfulness. He will always be true to himself, to his works, and to his creation. God is his own standard. God imitates nobody and is influenced by nobody. He is never forced to act out of character. Boy, that's so important. Because if God is always faithful and he is never forced to act out of character then the 400 years in Egypt were not forced on God. He didn't have to do it that way. And isn't it interesting that, you know, I'm sitting in this room right now, you could be thinking, well, I get that, that Pharaoh can't force God to do something. I get that. But what about me in my own life? What if I just choose to do X, Y, or Z? After all, God gave me a free will, didn't he? I'm just curious. You're going to pull out your free will card and trump the faithfulness of God card? You're telling me that God can't be faithful to his purpose and plan because 
your will is greater than his? Let me tell you where you're going to go with that. Because if you were amongst the Egyptians hanging, uh, Israelites hanging out in Egypt, you'd have been sitting there for 400 years scratching your head, wondering, what did I do to put me in this mess? What did I do to put me in this mess? And there's a room full of us right now here who think that way. Somewhere in the back of our closet, there's a sovereign God who's ruling everything, who's allowed our box to stay in one location for too long, and it's painful, and it's uncomfortable. We've lost sight that he is good and he is faithful. He's at work over there, and there's a timing involved here. We've lost sight of all that. Our only question this morning is, what did I do to get me in this spot? When you read about the Israelites in Egypt, is that the question you ask from the Bible? Did the Israelites do anything to get themselves in this pickle? They followed God's provision into Egypt. God provided for them to be there. It was what God wanted for them to be at that address. They did not pray. They didn't disobey God. They, didn't, they weren't lazy. didn't grow their own food. None of that's spoken of. God rescued them and put them at this address, and that address went bad. And in the day that your addresses go bad, you, you, you better have some good theology and not some frothy little theology going on. You better know God is with you in this. That he is being faithful in the difficulty as much as he's being faithful when you went in and it felt good. He's as faithful in your marriage today as he was the day you said, I do, or bought the ring, or whatever else felt a whole lot better. God hasn't changed. He's never forced to act out of character. Nothing can force God to act otherwise than faithfully to himself and to us. No person, no circumstance, nothing. Listen, this morning, I, I, I want you to open your heart to receive from God this morning. I want the spirit of God to zero in on your address where you are this morning. And I'm going to use a word here that sounds like a very passive word, but I want you to turn it into the most aggressive word you know how to use. And it's the word trust. I want you to face your Egypt. I want you to, to admit to God. Maybe it hadn't been 400 years, obviously, for you, but it's been 400-somethings. It's been too long. Your question, am I out of bounds? God, was it supposed to do this way? Am I in your will? You're wrestling through something in your life. And I want you to respond to looking at that aggressively with trust. Now, how many of you guys know we use that word trust as the most passive word we can possibly put our hands to? Well, I'm just trusting God. Well, what the heck does that mean? It means I've just resolved myself to that. I don't know what's going on and I'm just gonna hang out here until the roof caves in. Okay, that's it? Well, what else you want me to do? Uh, that, that's, that's not the kind of trust I'm talking about. I'm talking about an aggressive seeing something in God that makes you move toward it with an expectation to hang on, help is on its way. God is going to be faithful and I draw comfort from that. I draw courage from that. Don't be passive in this. Be aggressive. This is, a, this is in your business here. This fellow Maxie Dunham preached a message on this passage in Acts 
Just I thought, boy, this, this hits home. This is where we live. He said, the essence of the Christian faith is not certainty, but trust. Change is certain. What does that call us to? It calls us to trust, to trust the Lord of the covenant who is constant in his love and in his self-giving in the midst of change, and he is faithful. How often are we in situations where a king who did not know Joseph comes into power? All right, some of you guys have said these very things to me recently. A new president takes over your company, and we're not certain of our position anymore. Modern technology is so phenomenally fluid and dynamic that our skills become archaic, and we get nervous about how to keep up and whether you're going to keep having a job or not. Or the change may be at other levels of life. Death comes to our family, as it did to Israel with the death of Joseph. Our family's been left without a father or a mother. And, what means, and that means a whole new way of doing things. Perhaps you've gone through a divorce. You feel devastated and defeated. Or you may have just received a diagnosis from your doctor that verifies a suspicion that's a malignancy. And now your whole life seems different. The future's foreboding. You don't know how to talk about it or how to express your fears, so you're silent. You feel all alone and helpless. Change. It can bring despair, defeat, devastation. But there's another alternative. Trust. Trust the God of the covenant who is constant in his love and in his self-giving. Trust God. When God finally shows up in this story, God says, I have remembered the covenant I made with Abraham, the covenant I have with you. I am mindful of the covenant. Listen, this morning, God is mindful of the covenant he has with you. No matter how dark it feels, no matter how distant God feels, he is actively mindful of his covenant with you this morning. Let's stand up together. Actually, no, sit down. <laughs> sit down. Okay, listen, but don't disengage with me. Sit, just sit for a moment. Because I want you to think into your life and let the Holy Spirit just begin to communicate with you personally. God, we welcome your spirit in our midst this morning. Welcome the inner voice of your spirit, Lord. You speak to us. You convict us. You bring light into our souls in dark places. God, you clarify our confusion. God, you are in us by the spirit. So, God, we thank you for the preaching of the word. We thank you for the written word. And now, Lord, we thank you for your presence among us, your spirit in our hearts. Spirit that cries, Abba, Father, to get us to look to you, trust in you. God, I pray right now that you would begin to reveal conditions that are here that feel like I'm living in Egypt and God is absent. God is absent. I, I don't, don't know if my life is in bounds. Somehow, Lord, I don't sense you are involved in my situation. I just want you to get near to that thing. Whatever the 
Pharaoh in your life, whatever the conditions of your life are that have made you question God's faithfulness. Can you just draw near to that in the presence of God? For some of you, it may be categories that are relational and personal. It could be your your marriage sense of God certainly cannot. He doesn't feel like he's anywhere to be found. Maybe some of you are dealing with children who are wayward. Maybe children who have become hostile toward you. to do with that and it just feels like it's not going to change. It feels like they're not responding. They're not responsive to God. Nothing seems to be reaching them. Things keep getting worse. There's a greater and greater distance between us and your heart says, God, it wasn't supposed to be this way. Where are you? I know some of you have faced some really challenging job situations where it just looks like there's a new boss, there's there's new policies, there's some kind of a new program or activity at work that I just, I'm not any good at that. I don't know how I'm going to keep up. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm fearful doing this for years and I don't see a future. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to gather up all that God has brought to us this morning, that he put into this story to show us that at the right time, in the right place, in the wise way of God, God is going to show up. He's going to invade your situation. And he's not absent and he is not forgotten. But there will be a day when God touches that thing in a different way than it's being touched right now. But can you just believe in a faithful God this morning? So here's why I wanted you to sit down because trust needs to be active. You cannot sit down and trust. So what I'm going to ask you to do is if this morning God is touching a category where you're wondering where God is. You're in Egypt and you don't sense God's faithfulness. But this morning God by his grace has readjusted that and you're in a place right now to trust him, to aggressively trust him. To declare that God I I see you more clearly. I understand you more clearly. So God I put my trust in you not just waiting for stuff to happen. I'm anticipating the day you will engage this situation. So if if that's what's in your heart this morning, can, can you go ahead and stand up right now? Stand up and declare, God, I am trusting you that way with this. gather here Lord, 
quite a bit just for this purpose. Well, we have come in from another week of life where this fallen world, our broken bodies, our limited minds and perspectives have wandered into trouble and we're afraid. God, we're in in need. We're desperate. And God, we come in here this morning and you wrote some things down for us to receive as instruction, some insight, some behind-the-scenes look at who you are. Oh, God, how helpful has this been for my soul to look at this this week, to know that my God never stops being faithful. God, you've never had a moment where you weren't being faithful, even if inside my little box nothing seems to be changing. You are actively at work. You are active in my life, God. You are not absent. So God, this morning, we wrestle our trust away from our fears. God, we're not gonna put our trust in our fears. We're not gonna put our trust in people, not in our spouses or our children or our boss. God, we wrestle our trust from those places and God, we put it in you. We say this morning, God, you are my God. You are my covenant God. You have made promises to me. You will be faithful to those promises and there will not be a day in the future of my life where you are any less faithful than you ever have been. That's who you are, God. That's who I anticipate you being in the days ahead. So Lord, I am hanging on to you because I know help is on the way, God. You will act on my behalf, Lord. We believe that this morning. All my hopes, all I need held in your hands. All my life, all of me held in your hands. All my fears, all my dreams held in your hands. All my hopes, all my hopes, all I need held in your hands. All my
trust in you, God. Lord, and for some this morning, it's hard to trust. Because what we can see is, is devastating, Lord. What we can see is discouraging. It's depressing. Lord, but just ask your spirit, even right now at the close of our meeting, Lord, we ask your spirit to impart faith in us to trust you. Lord, help us to trust in what we cannot see. Lord, but trust in what we do know. And what we do know is that you are a faithful God. Lord, thank you for your word this morning that helped us to remember the faithfulness of God to us. Lord, help us as we leave this morning to, to leave having been bolstered in our faith. God, having been reminded that there is a God who is worth trusting, who is trustworthy. 
God, help us to live lives this week that walk out this trust, this, this commitment we're making as we stood a few moments ago to trust you. Lord, help us to walk that out this week. Lord, and would your spirit help us, we pray. We love you, God. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen, you guys. Have a great week.